We're going to be looking at Zephaniah. We've been looking at some of the minor prophets, major messages from the minor prophets, and uh, we are down to Zephaniah. You'll go back a screen there on the slide projector. Go back. Here we go. And uh, Zephaniah is the Polaroid prophet. You know, I was shocked at Christmas, this last Christmas. I remember the old Polaroid cameras. I had one. One of those old Polaroid cameras back many, many years ago. I see some people nodding their heads. I couldn't believe it. It was Christmas at our house, and the grandkids were there, and we have two teenagers. They came in with Polaroid cameras. I thought, Polaroid cameras? You've got Polaroid cameras. That is ancient. That's from uh, millennia ago. Why would anyone have a Polaroid camera? But I learned that Polaroid cameras had made their comeback. And they were the coolest, greatest, next best thing in cameras to have your very own Polaroid camera. So you can buy film that's about $5 a print. And uh, you, can, you can actually print it. and ha- I don't know what that costs, the film. But uh, you can actually have your picture immediately instead of uh, just having it on your, uh, on your phone. And so Z- uh, Zephaniah has been called the Polaroid prophet in the Bible. And the reason for that is because the book of Zephaniah, as you're there at it in your Bible, you can see it's only three chapters long. And it has been said of Zephaniah that the book of Zephaniah is like a series of snapshots. Three snapshots in three short little chapters that show what the larger, major prophets contained in their large treatises, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, these large books in the prophets of our Bible. It has been said, someone back in the 1500s wrote and said, if you want to read the message of the prophets in a short little treatise, read Zephaniah, because it contains all the major elements of the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah condensed down. Now today we would say Zephaniah is the cliff note version of Jeremiah. It's the short. So if if, uh, time is of essence and you want to read the book of Jeremiah, just flip over to Zephaniah. You can read it in five minutes and be done and have read the uh, essence of Jeremiah. Now that's not a very good idea, but nonetheless, that's what Zephaniah has been known as, the Polaroid prophet, the cliff notes version of the, of the uh, longer prophets. Now, uh, let's jump ahead one screen there and uh, get our uh, idea of where. So we're looking at Zephaniah here. Zephaniah was a, a, a um, preaching at the same time as Jeremiah. Uh, he's one of the last prophets before the, divi- the uh, captivity where the southern kingdom went into Babylonian captivity. And so... Uh, Zephaniah is looking forward. We can go to the next screen. Zephaniah is looking forward to two different elements. He's looking towards the judgment of God. Prophets often preached on the judgment of God because that was God's message for what the people were facing. And he also looked forward and saw the restoration at the end of the captivity. So two great themes are judgment and salvation. Judgment because of our sin, and then the eventual grace and mercy and salvation from God that will bring us back and restore us. But 
we recognize that in studying the, the prophets of the Old Testament that, that they saw beyond the immediate judgment and the immediate restoration. And within their prophecies, there were promises and things stated that did not happen in the short term. We can go to the next screen. We see that, that while Zephaniah looked at the immediate judgment of God and after 70 years, then the return some of the language and some of the things that Zephaniah preached, as other prophets preached in the Old Testament, spoke of a judgment that would be massive in comparison to the judgment told about regarding the Babylonian captivity or earlier the Assyrian captivity for the northern kingdom. So they looked beyond the near-time judgment to an end-time judgment that would be cataclysmic for the entire world population. Likewise, they looked forward to a restoration or a salvation or the blessing of God that would be universal and would be far greater than the immediate restoration at the end of the Babylonian captivity. So the prophets of the Old Testament would often prophesy and preach about a soon-to-come judgment and a soon-to-come salvation but what they said, what they preached, the messages God gave to them were not fulfilled in their entirety. You can read the, the, the books. You can read Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of these parts of the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And then you can study the history of the Old Testament. And you can see that some of the stuff they prophesied didn't come to pass at that time. It was looking beyond to something that will be far greater in intensity that will happen later. We go to the next slide. It's kind of like when, when you are a distance away looking at a mountain range and you see the peaks of the mountains and it looks like they're scrunched one right up against the other. And yet if you go closer to the mountains and get into the midst of the mountains, you find out between that first peak and that second peak was a huge valley or series of valleys. And between that peak and the final peak, there were another valley or series of valleys. And so what seemed to be right up against each other may have miles and miles and miles and miles and miles between them. And prophetically, what seemed to be right up against each other would have a thousand years between the two mountain peaks. And so the study of the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, we constantly see examples of where the preacher with the message of God preached a message to the people that were alive there about what they were going to experience in their lifetime, but they were only going to experience a small taste of it. The fullness of what God gave them to preach and that they preached would come way down the road. And then we finally get to the rest of the Bible and we read the book of Revelation and we see the culmination of all of that massive judgment and the culmination of all of that amazing salvation when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth the second time. And so Zephaniah is preaching to a people about the immediate, but some of what he says didn't happen in the immediate. It stretches out into the end time events of the what we read in the book of, of Daniel and the book of 
revelation. And so that's important just to realize when we think about the prophets. Something else about the, the, um, the, the prophets that I think is important, and that is that studying the preachers of the Old Testament really helps one to develop a political understanding of how God deals with politics, how God deals with his world structure, how God deals with nations, not only his people, but the nations of the world. Political science is very much a part of understanding the prophetic scriptures. And that's why I've encouraged young preachers to study the preachers of the Old Testament. The preachers of the Old Testament will show you how God deals with the world, both his own people and the nations of the world. And if all we know is what's in front of us, we can very easily miss the character of how God deals with the world. But the Old Testament preachers who preached about things in their day and things that haven't yet happened in our day that we still look forward to, understanding the preachers of the Old Testament helps us to understand the character of God and how he instructs his preachers to preach his message to the world of their time. And that can really help us escape some of the, the trendy things where preachers are told, don't ever say sin, don't ever preach about something that will make someone feel guilty, don't ever preach this or that or the other, uh, it will offend people. And you go back to the Word of God and study the preachers of the Bible, and, and you realize that's just man-made trendy stuff. That's not God. That's not God's character in instructing preachers to preach the Word of God to His people and to the world. So studying the preachers of the Bible, tremendous opportunity to understand the character of God in preaching. Something else, a couple of just a background facts here about Zephaniah. Zephaniah has been called the prophet of royal descent. In, in verse number one of Zephaniah one, uh, he is traced all the way back to Hezekiah. Hezekiah was King Hezekiah. He was the great, Zephaniah was the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah, which was a phenomenal king a few generations earlier, which means Zephaniah is in the lineage of David. He is in the princely lineage of the kingly group that came down from King David. And so Zephaniah is a royal man. He's a man of the, of the courts of Jerusalem. He was comfortable with the politicians, the kings, the princes, the people in Jerusalem that ruled over Israel. He was the prophet of royal descent. He had a spiritual connection as a prophet and a political connection as a descendant of King Hezekiah, which means the current king, which verse 1 tells us is Josiah, the current king is a distant cousin to Zephaniah. So Zephaniah is a preacher of the word of God who comes from the line of the kingly lineage, a distant relative of the current king. He is well positioned both politically and spiritually to address the needs of the people that God gave him to preach to. He was a prophet of royal descent who was made a preacher by God. Now that brings up another interesting tidbit 
And that is that the current king, his distant cousin, the current king, King Josiah, was a, one of the great phenomenal kings at bringing about a restoration uh, of Judah. You, you study that back in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. I wish we had time to go back and scan through those because it's a phenomenal. King Josiah uh, was, uh, was a king that became burdened for the fact that Judah had gone so deep into apostasy. They had built shrines to the Canaanite idols. They were actually sacrificing their children to Canaanite idols and, and, and Baal and, and all Ashtaroth and all these pagan idols. Right in Jerusalem, they had built idols and the temple itself wasn't even being used. And so Josiah becomes the king and, and he's burdened for the fact that, that the nation of God had gone so deep into apostasy that there was little, if any, worship of Jehovah. And he became burdened about that. And so he started a renovation project to renovate the temple. When they were renovating the temple, they found a copy of the Bible. They hadn't had a copy of the Bible for a long time. They found a copy of the Word of God and they brought it to, to King Josiah. And Josiah said, wow, a copy of the Bible. And he had someone read it to him. And as they read it to him, he broke down and began to weep. He said, we are in trouble. Look at what God told our forefathers. Probably reading from Deuteronomy, the blessings and the cursings. You do what I tell you to do, I'll bless you. You don't do what I tell you to do, I'll curse you. The blessings and the cursings that run throughout the book of Deuteronomy. The second telling of the law, what Deuteronomy means. And so uh, as, as they read it to him, he realized we're under the curse of God. We are in trouble. And so he spearheaded an effort. They cleaned up the temple. He began to tear down the idols around Jerusalem. He began to command people to worship Jehovah. And he led in an amazing reformation or restoration of the worship of Jehovah. But here's the thing. He was doing all that. And Zephaniah is a preacher in Jerusalem preaching. And Zephaniah never mentions anything about that great reformation. Not a word about that great reformation. He only preached about the sin and judgment of God and the salvation if you repent. But he never said anything about this great restoration or reformation of the people. Now that has intrigued Bible students over the years. And so Zephaniah has been, been studying and, and, and preachers, teachers scratching their head. If, if I was a preacher and I was preaching the Sunday after the Supreme Court turned over the 1973 laws and, and, and declared that no longer those laws are valid, uh, I, I would think that the preachers would get up and say, way to go Supreme Court. Zephaniah didn't say a thing. He didn't say a thing about the political reformation by the politicians in his city. That has intrigued Bible students. Let me read you a couple of statements. This one comes from J. Sidlow Baxter, who wrote the four-volume set, Explore the Book. He said, there is something pathetic, however, about the religious reform in the days of King Josiah. Outwardly, it was impressive, perhaps, but inwardly, it was far from what is needed. 
It was an outward reformation sponsored by the king rather than a real spiritual revival among the people themselves. Certainly, Josiah's cleanup of Judah's religious abuses and his reorganizing of religion on the older lines have a grand royal lead. But even a king cannot organize a real revival. And the movement in Josiah's time was reformation as distinct from regeneration. It did not get down to the undercurrents of the nation's life. This was made clear by Jeremiah 3.10, who was a contemporary of, of Zephaniah. Uh, Jeremiah said, Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord. It was hypocrisy. They did what the politicians told them to do. Politicians made some great decisions. Josiah made some great decisions. Josiah, Josiah led in a great reformation. And did all he could do as a politician to be able to do things that would be honoring to God. But all that was, was a political reformation. It didn't get to the hearts of the people. And the preacher Jeremiah said it. Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart. But just feignedly. Shallow. Political. But it wasn't a conversion of the hearts of people to the ways of God the stream of iniquity flowed on unstemmed judgment was unavoidable though the storm was not unleashed until good king Josiah's reign was over you know what the political reformation did it held back the judgment of God for a few more years you read it in 2 Kings 22 and 23. God said, Josiah, you've done a great job. You've wept before me. You've prayed. You've done everything you could do as a politician. You're a politician. You've done what a politician can do. But that won't fix the problem. The problem is the unregenerate heart of the people who live in the land. And what you've done, as good as it is, doesn't fix the problem. But because of your sincerity, your weeping before me, your, your brokenness in your heart... I will hold back the judgment till after you die. And God let Josiah live out his life in peace and die before God unleashed the judgment that Jeremiah and Zephaniah preached was coming, not because of the outward forms of religion, but because of the heart of the people who lived there. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, Zephaniah saw deeper than the skin. He saw the hearts of the people, and he knew that their religious zeal was not sincere. The reforms were shallow. The people got rid of the idols in their homes, but not the idols in their hearts. The rulers of the land were still greedy and disobedient, and the city of Jerusalem was the source of all kinds of wickedness in the land. And then Warren Wiersbe made this comment. He said, even today, Many believers lack discernment and think that every religious movement is a genuine work of the Lord. Interesting statement from Warren Wiersbe. Here's G. Campbell Morgan, the, um, the respected preacher of a bygone day. He said, it is a remarkable thing that Zephaniah ignores the Reformation. Zephaniah's severity in dealing with court life. Because Zephaniah attacked the king, the princes, the the political leaders. 
Zephaniah's severity in dealing with the court life is also explained by his intimate acquaintance with it as a prince. The Reformation was due to Josiah and was as thorough as he could make it, but so far as the people were concerned, it was worthless, being only conformity to the command of the king. It had not its root in true godliness in the nation as a whole. Zephaniah, therefore, ignores the whole movement and speaks to a people utterly corrupt. Boy, I find that to be fascinating. Because the Word of God is my instructor as a preacher on how God expects preachers to act, what God expects preachers to preach, what preachers understand of the character of God in dealing with certain situations. And so I am, I, I find it very instructive as a pastor, as a preacher, that Zephaniah ignored the Reformation and spoke to the heart of sinful people that were unchanged. You know, we're thankful, I'm thankful, we're all thankful. As I'm sure Zephaniah was thankful that Josiah had done what he did. And we're thankful that our Supreme Court did what it did. You know, nobody, nobody's heart was changed because of that action. It was a great reformation. It was a great restoration of sanity and law to our land. It was a great acknowledgement that the previous Supreme Court really messed up big time as a political court that made up a right that didn't exist. I mean, that's great that the Supreme Court sought to correct the mistake of history. But you know, at the end of the day, it's not the Reformation. It's the revival that changes a heart that God focuses on. And when God sent Zephaniah, he sent him to deliver messages that would deal with the heart, not what was happening politically in his country. And all that coming revival that Zephaniah preached about was not in the immediate present, but Zephaniah saw that it was coming. And so he preached about the imminent judgment and the revival that would come when people's hearts are broken before their God and they're converted and changed. And that great day is what Zephaniah is all about. There's a great day coming. There's a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. And Zephaniah preached about that great day. Now, that's a lot of background. But let me take our last, we got about 14 minutes. Let me take our last little bit of time to show you these three snapshots from the book of Zephaniah. The first snapshot is a snapshot that reveals that ignoring God has consequences on God's nation, on Israel, on Jerusalem, the capital city. When we ignore God, that brings consequences, regardless of what happens politically, regardless of what the politicians do. When people from their hearts ignore God, we heard a great message this morning that kind of brought things together in the book of Romans chapter 1, how that their heart was turned from God, and God gave them over and gave them over and gave them over. And finally, at the end of the chapter 1 in Romans, Pastor Chris read to us that last verse where they not only rejected God from their own hearts, but they had pleasure, they celebrated, they rejoiced, they 
had pleasure with others who rebelled against God from their hearts. And that's the core of the problem in every generation and in every part of the world. And so Zephaniah's first snapshot, or I could say God's first snapshot that he showed through the Polaroid prophet was that when you ignore God, there are consequences. How did he show that? Well, uh, you can see in your little worksheet there that he announced that judgment was coming. Chapter 1, verse number 2, he said, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. And he went on all the way through verse number 9, talking about how he was going to bring utter judgment upon people. Why? Because as he explained in those verses, because they ignored him and they began to worship the gods of their own making. And if you look at the end of verse number 6, verse number 6, he said, those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. You know, at the root of the snapshot of there are consequences to ignoring God, if, if, if you don't seek after God, if you don't inquire after God, there are consequences that will come. I will utterly wipe out. And he listed people and animals, and he just was going to bring judgment, catastrophic judgments on the earth. Why? Because from their heart, they did not seek God. They did not inquire after God. I have to ask myself the question, would God look at my life today and would God say of me that I am seeking him? When I get up in the morning, when I go through the activities of the day, do I seek him? Do I inquire after him? Do I talk to him through the day? Do I ask him his opinion on things? Do I ask him for his advice? Do I inquire of him? What do you want from this situation, God? Do I seek him? Do I inquire after him? There are consequences for ignoring God. And Israel had come to the point in their ignoring God. They, they, no one knew where a Bible was. They, the, the temple was in disuse. The worship of Jehovah had fallen to an all-time low. They had replaced Jehovah with the gods of their own making. They were not seeking God and inquiring after him. God said, there are consequences coming. I will judge you. In verse number 12 of chapter 1. Verse number 12, he said he's going to, uh, the judgment is going to be so severe that he'll take candles and search out every room in Jerusalem looking for people. He'll go through Jerusalem with candles looking for people. Who's he looking for? He's looking for people who say in their heart, notice in their heart, they say in their heart, God will do, will not do good, neither will he do evil. God is uninvolved, God is nobody, God is not important. God doesn't do good. God doesn't do evil. Who cares about God? From their heart, they have ignored Jehovah God. And that has consequences. And the consequences is ultimate judgment. In verse number 14 and 15 of this chapter, the Zephaniah said, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. He said, people are going to cry, beg God for mercy when that judgment finally comes. You remember the book of Revelation, how that they'll get in caves and they'll cry and beg for the rocks of the mountain to fall down and crush them so they can escape this terrible day of the Lord? This is the last mountain peak of judgment. 
that we see in the Old Testament prophets that we see all the way into the book of Revelation. He says the great day is near. Verse number 15, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's going to be bad, Zephaniah said. He gives them a snapshot. You ignore God. There are consequences you will pay. And even your money can't buy your way out. Verse number 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Why? Verse 17, in the middle of the verse, verse 17, because they have sinned against the Lord. So the first snapshot is a snapshot of judgment. But even in the midst of the snapshot of judgment, there's grace offered, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says to the people, gather yourselves together, verse 3, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Notice that grace is offered because we live a, we serve an amazing God. We serve a gracious God, a merciful God, a long-suffering God. And this merciful, gracious, long-suffering God in the midst of, of a snapshot of ultimate judgment, God offers grace. However, in chapter 3, if you jump across to chapter 3, verse number 1, they spurned God's offer. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. Now notice verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. She obeyed not, she received not, she trusted not, she drew not near. To her God. Wow, what a statement. They would not obey the voice of God. They would not trust what God said. Boy, does that fit into the morning message. They didn't trust God. They came up with their own ideas. They didn't receive God's correction when he corrected them. They did not draw near to God. The, the grace that was offered in chapter uh, 2, verse 1 to 3, that grace was spurned. They rejected the grace and mercy of God. You'll see in verse number, uh, in verse number uh, 3 and 4, he attacks their princes, judges, prophets, and priests in verses 3 and 4. Princes, judges, prophets, and priests. Two political figures, two spiritual figures. Zephaniah announces that the people had spurned the grace of God politically and spiritually in the political leaders and in the spiritual leaders they God in verse number seven God said surely thou wilt fear me thou wilt receive instruction so that their dwelling should not be cut off however uh, howsoever I punished them but they arose early and corrupted all their doings he said, surely they're not going to spurn my grace. Surely they're going to accept my mercy. I've warned them. I gave them this snapshot of judgment. Surely, as I've offered grace, they'll respond to grace. Not a chance. They spurned the grace of God. And so the first snapshot is a snapshot that ignoring God has consequences on God's nation. Let me mention as well that there's a second snapshot and it's that ignoring God has consequences on the world. You see, God's not just concerned about Israel. He's concerned about the whole world. And so in chapter 2, back into chapter 2, 
in verses 4 through the end of the chapter, he focuses on the nations around. Let's have a couple of slides here uh, just so you can see where he goes. If you, if you trace down through those verses in chapter 2, he first of all talks about the, the nations along the coast, Philistia, off to the west. Second, he then went to the east. Next slide. He went to the east and he spoke of Ammon and Moab. And then third, he went to the he went to the south, that's an arrow by the way, all the way down to Egypt. He mentioned Egypt by name. And finally, he went to the north to Assyria and mentioned the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh. And so in other words, the prophet preaching from Jerusalem delivered a message that said, God's, you, if the nations of the world ignore God, I'm talking about the west, I'm talking about the east, I'm talking about the south, I'm talking about the north. If the nations of the world ignore God, they have consequences. And that was the second snapshot. Now let's go to the third and final snapshot. The third and final snapshot is a, is a wonderful snapshot. It states that seeking God brings consequences. If we seek God, seeking God brings consequences. In chapter 3, verse number 8 through the end of the book of Zephaniah, chapter 8, or verse 8 says, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey for my determination. What is God determined to do? What is God determined to do? For my determination is to gather the nations. You see, this goes far beyond what happened at the end of the Babylonian captivity. This goes far beyond the near-time judgment and salvation from judgment. This goes to the nations of the world. God's determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation. That's Revelation chapter 19. To pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger for all the earth. That's not just the Babylonians or the, or the Medo-Persians or the Egyptians or the Assyrians, the main world powers around the Middle East during the time of Old Testament history. No, God's determination is to bring all the nations of the world together who have fought against him, who have ignored him. Can you say anti-Semitism? I'm going to bring the nations of the world together and pour out my judgment. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire. Oh, that sounds a lot like 3 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 3 Peter. Is there a 3 Peter? 2 Peter chapter 3. That sounds a lot like the book of Revelation. God burning up the world with fire. I, the rainbow. I'm not going to destroy the world with water again. But then he said... I will destroy the world again. You talk about global warming. God is going to globally warm up the world. And this world will last until God's ready to warm it up. And God is going to warm it up with a mighty fire, Second Peter tells us about. The fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Let me just point out a couple of things here. Notice in, in verse number 11. You see verse 11 in that day. Verse 16 in that day. Verse 19 at that time. Verse 20 at that time. 
twice he said in that day and twice he said at that time. And each one of them is an announcement of God's consequences to people who seek him. What will God do in that day at that time? Well, first of all, he's going to remove sinners. Verse number 11 says, In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. Now, isn't that interesting on the last week of Pride Month? You know, God's amazing how he puts things together. I don't know another of the minor prophets to speak about the, the pride in that way. This is the pride of rebels. Pride of their sin. Pride, proud of their lifestyle. Proud of their, their, their uh, they, they become woke. They have become uh, aware that there's nothing wrong with this, that, and the other. And they're proud and they have pride parades, and they flaunt their immorality, and they flaunt their perversion, and they're proud of it. And Zephaniah said, the day's going to come when God says, I'm going to remove the sinners. I'm going to remove the sinners. He goes on and talks about that down until verse 15, but notice verse 14. Here's the, here's the emotion of this day, in that day, when those who seek after God, when those who come out of the judgment of the first snapshot and the second snapshot and repent from their hearts and they receive the consequences of seeking God, the emotion, I love the emotion, verse number 14, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. Can you say the death to anti-Semitism? Can you say the destruction of anti-Semitism? He hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thine hands be slack. Oh, the excitement, the emotional excitement of the people. When that day finally comes, the third snapshot, the consequences of seeking God. And then notice verse 16 and 17. He says, rejoice. Verse number 17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. I love this. He will, he will, he will, he will. You see that in verse number 17? Four things God said he's going to do. These are the consequences of seeking God. You know what God will do when someone repents from their heart and seek after God? He said he will save. Aren't you glad he saves? Not only will he save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. God rejoices over the repentant sinner. Do you remember Jesus telling the parables in Luke about how that when they found that one lost sheep and they found that one lost coin and they found that one lost son, there was joy in the presence of the angels of God. Who's, what do you mean there's joy? Who, who's filled with joy in heaven? Well, if it's in the presence of the angels, if it's not the angels filled with joy, who is in the presence of the angels? God, and God joys over the conversion of a sinner. 
And that's the promise here. He will rejoice. He will joy. Rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. And I love this last one. He will joy over thee with singing. You know, God's going to sing over you. We sing to God. We love to sing to God. We love it when the choir sings to God. When, when, when a solo sings to God. We love to sing to God. In that day, God is going to sing to you. He's going to sing of his love to you. He's going to sing of his compassion to you. He's going to sing of his favor of you. He's going to sing. The Bible says that God will joy over thee with singing. This is the amazing rejoicing of the saints of God. And then he's going to gather Israel together. Look at verse number 19. Verse number 19. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee. Can you say death of anti-Semitism? I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Everywhere the Jews were driven, and they were shamed, and they were mocked, and they were ridiculed. Every university where anti-Semitism causes them grief and pain, every country around the globe where the people of God, the Israelite nation, have been squandered by the hatred of the peoples toward the people that brought us the Bible, the people that produced the Messiah, the people of Israel, God says he's going to make sure that every one of them is praised and that they have fame from every country that at one time shamed them. Wow. And then finally, in verse number 20, he's going to exalt Israel. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Wow. He's going to exalt the people of God, the nation of Israel. At the end of the tribulation period, He's going to exalt them. He's going to establish them. He's going to fulfill his promises to them. He's going to do what he said he would do throughout the Old Testament in fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel. Three snapshots. You ignore God as the people of God? You ignore God as the people of God? There are consequences. Nations of the world, you ignore Jehovah God? There are consequences for that. And then those of you who get saved, who seek God, and are converted from your heart, there are some amazing consequences that come into our lives that culminate in a great day that's coming.